Hello and welcome back to the Football Index podcast, episode 107. And today I'm joined by F.I. Sigmund Freund. I think there needs to be some sort of story behind this handle. So why don't you take it away, mate? Yeah, so um, I guess just randomly when I was thinking about what to make my handle name, I'm a Spurs fan and Stefan Freund was, I think, quite an iconic player for many Spurs fans, given that he was all effort and limited technical ability. He was sort of a cult hero. And then when I was going through some of his photos, just saw just the most outrageous mullet on him, which I thought was just too comedy not to post. And then started talking about psychology because I'm a psychologist. Someone else actually suggested that I I missed a trick and I should have called myself uh, Sigmund Freund instead of Stefan Freund. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of where it stuck. Amazing. And uh, you are famed for your kind of psychology-ish posts on Twitter, I suppose. I don't know what to really call them. Or psychology-led approaches on Football Index Twitter. Why don't you give a bit of background on yourself and why you post in the way you do, and then a bit more about your Football Index journey as well. Okay, uh, yeah, so my background is, I guess, when I was leaving university about 20 years ago, I was considering what to do next and I applied for a kind of a performance analysis uh, stats and analytics uh, role with a premiership football club because I've always been really interested in football and I kind of got down to the last two and one of the things we had to do on that was we had to suggest a model that we would use or how the club could use performance analysis effectively and so I was reading all the research papers and then one of the uh, Findings came out that most people, managers included, only remember about 40% of what actually happens in the match. (laughs) There's just too much information for the brain to filter. And so one of the questions I was asked in my interview was, would I tell the manager that stat? And I was like, yeah, of course I would. I think that's quite interesting. You'd want to know. Knowledge is power. And I think that kind of cost me the gig, actually, because I don't think that's kind of what they were looking for. They just wanted something that it was early days and kind of we didn't people didn't really know how to use numbers and analysis as well as they do now in football and so I then kind of shifted my focus to if I'm not going to work in that field well what I found interesting was why do people only remember 40% and what's the kind of psychology behind coaching and learning and performance and so then I kind of mainly focused my studies and efforts on I researched psychology of youth athletes uh, and why some of them make it and some of them don't which led to me then working in psychology um did a fair bit of stuff in football and then after a while shifted over to Olympic sports, uh, mainly based on London 2012 being a home games and a kind of a rare opportunity. And then after that, I did the sport thing for long enough and then kind of took a lot of the research findings around how people learn and resilience, which is what we were talking about at the time, and basically now apply it to businesses and organisations um, so they can help their team and their staff think clearly and think well under pressure. Interesting. And I think before we got on the line, you said that you actually, not roped into it, but persuaded to join when you saw a a tweet from Sam Friedman. Yeah, so I I mean, I haven't actually ever met Sam, but kind of through my work, uh, my day job, essentially, I work in a fairly similar field at times and know people in common and always kind of think he's the smartest man on Twitter and he's like almost always right about stuff. I'd known about Football Index for a while. I think the first time I looked into it, which of course I'm kicking myself now for not joining then, was it was only media-based and it didn't really 
tie into my area of performance essentially but when i saw him then tweet about it i think he just tweeted a dividend predictor i was like okay so if someone like him is publicly engaging with this product it's clearly fairly mainstream it's probably not a cult or a scam and that then made me kind of dip my toe in the water uh i listened to his podcast both of his uh podcasts i think i did his first one i listened to his first one with you and that kind of just made me kind of start to learn the ropes of of football index if you're listening out there sam i think sigma knows you a bit Um, (laughs) we've got loads of questions but before we do get into it i just want to remind everyone that um, my other podcast the state of play all about uh, europe's top five leagues and also a bit of the mls is back uh, every tuesday goes out about five six o'clock and is with uh, matt santangelo analyst who's been on the fig pod a few times and uh, yeah we just get chatting about football for about an hour a week and it's uh, not too bad getting a bit of traction so check that out and uh, if you guys are enjoying the podcast, um, for example, Sigmund owes everything to it, clearly, after that bit of story background, then please do leave a review. If you're listening on iTunes especially, uh, do leave a review, five stars, if you're you know feeling generous. And also, why not leave Football Index themselves in a review on the App Store, on Trustpilot, on Google, anywhere and everywhere that you can think of that can make their brand look stronger and just... Give them your thoughts. If you're really enjoying the product, then spend 10 minutes of your day trying to reinforce that. But let's get into some uh, miscellaneous questions here. FI Headhunter has a couple. Do you think the Football Index community should do a mullet May for charity? We could do for the mullet what November has done for the Tash. Yeah, well, given that my wife says she'll divorce me if I grow a moustache, I think I'd have a hard time pushing through me growing a mullet. Though if... Yeah, I guess if Headhunter wants to lead the way, uh, maybe others will follow. <laughs> I don't know if I could pull that off, I'm not going to lie. Especially yeah. if I'm making videos on Football Index, if I've got a mullet on. I, I... It's a bold look for anyone to go for. It really is. He's got another one here. What would be your top three footballing mullets in order? And then Edvin- Edvinkler's Index also follows up from the forum. He says, what's your favourite mullet of all time? Barry Venison, Rudy Voller, Chris Voddle... Freud, Freud's Moller or Jerry Francis? Yes, yeah, see, I'd go, like, the obvious answer I'd say would be to go with Chris Waddle. Iconic, wasn't Iconic, it? Iconic, yeah. But, yeah, as I say, I'm a Spurs fan, so, like, you can't beat Jerry Francis. And what he's had commitment to the mullet, both in his playing days. So I think there's a great picture out there with him, with Pele, with him in his mullet, and as a manager. So I think just for commitment to the mullet cause, I'd go Jerry Francis. Would you class Roberto Baggio as mullet-esque? No, he's definitely in the ponytail uh, category. I think, it's, like, I think it's a crossbreed. Maybe. It's close. It's really close. Yeah. I'm trying to think of other footballing mullets there. I was, I was just trying to think of other footballing ponytails, and I couldn't really think of any. That's kind of why I was pausing. I think mullets... I, I seem to remember Cesc Fabregas having one really yeah. early on. Yeah. So he looks ridiculously young in his mullet photo. Torres, I mean, always had a bit of a mullet on, on the go. Uh, as well yeah he did he did and yeah i guess rudy Voller's is of a classic era isn't it i guess as well <laughs> yeah i just had a little search here i'm looking at torres and he definitely did have one yeah that baggio one is, is controversial um maybe i'll tweet it now and see yeah what i was gonna say I'll, I'll let the twitter mob decide on that one <laughs> let me try and find a good photo and then tweet it baggio if i just type in baggio mullet 
See, that's influence. See, a psychologist. Is that influencing? Really? Yeah, exactly. That would say that. I was just trying to think of it like what's a fair photo to choose. And I, I would can't go really... for kind of him, uh, an iconic one, say like USA 94 World Cup is probably okay. the most. Uh... Okay, let me go for that. I don't know, though. His hair looks different in that than yeah, it did. All right, fine. Well, I won't tweet it. <laughs> now, let's get into some serious questions here before we, we go nuts. nuts. Serious uh, <laughs> <laughs> FI Gardner, great guest fig. Which psychological technique would you say is the most beneficial when trading on Football Index? Well, I've got to say I'm a big fan of FI Gardner's tweets because I always think that's the level of nonsense you need on Twitter is someone posting like random quirky content about their day life, like mowing a lawn and doing garden landscape and Football Index. So I was quite chuffed that he said I'm a a great guest because I'm a bit of a fan as well. Important psychological techniques when trading on the index... I think it depends partly on your strategy because some strategies lend themselves more to being they're more psychologically heavy uh, strategies. So, for example, if you're buying for PB players, I don't think psychology influences the choice too much because you're really looking at data, you're doing analysis based on yields. Traders who do that probably or on either like stuff like index gain or they have their spreadsheets. So I think they're, if you're quite numbers-based, there's less influence on psychology. Where I think there is quite a big influence is if you do more of the short-term trading. So if you're buying, I think, for IPD, if you're basing around fixtures and form, and you're basically, as well as IPD, going after cap app, I think... What I guess is interesting in psychology is we always say people don't buy things, they buy descriptions of things. And therefore, I can change the description of something, I can change the story of it to make it lean one way or another, whereas you don't really have that when you're buying for PB players. And so if people based on descriptions, they're quite susceptible to cognitive biases. Uh, do you just, sorry to interrupt, but could you do that for PB players as well to some extent? I know that there's that old saying and I don't know how it goes but it's like you can construe data to fit any sort of narrative right so you could pick a PB player take all their stats and I guess construe it in a way that would fit a certain narrative and now I guess that's slightly nuanced to what you're saying in terms of just the raw data there but is there something there as well absolutely you can and, and the thing that that's um called is what you described it's called like confirmation bias yes yeah, yeah yeah and so my favorite example of that is you and i watch the same match and we can come out with a completely different opinion so let's say i like a player and i'm dying to buy him and i've been thinking about it for ages if he tries to do lots of attacking passes i leave that match going he was really positive on the ball but let's say a lot of those passes don't go through you leave that match and you don't like that player going, his pass completion rate was terrible. And yet we've seen the same event, but yeah, it's just confirmed what we both previously thought. My favourite example ever of that is last year, I don't know if you saw the stats came out about which players in the Premiership and the Liga gave the ball away the most. I don't remember them, so please do remind me and the listeners. So in the Premiership, the player who gave the ball away the most last year was Kevin De Bruyne. Uh Uh-huh. And the player who gave the ball away the most in the Liga was Messi. But that's obviously because attacking players are trying to create. They're trying to make stuff happen. And they're probably doing more passes as well because they're in a more dominant team. But you could easily see if you wanted to show stats that highlighted De Bruyne being brilliant, or if you wanted to paint a narrative of De Bruyne being wasteful, you just show that version of the stats. But generally speaking, I think PB players are less susceptible 
or PB purchasers. A great example of that, I think, on Twitter a week or two ago, or however long ago, is one of your former guests, uh, PB man. Mm-hmm. He posted like his top six or seven holds and went, I don't mind what the market has to say about them because these are, I believe in their value. And because there's not trading on the perception of them, he's basically mainly, I imagine, trading on, he considers them to be undervalued based on their, their stats. But if people are trading on short-term fixtures, and to go back to um, FI Gardner's questions, I did come up with a couple techniques that I think are beneficial to know when trading. And I have one or two like experiments that I thought I could share with you to illustrate it. So the first one is called anchoring. The key to anchoring is basically you're trying to get a different price, an irrelevant price or random price in someone else's mind. So for example, when you go to buy a car, they'll tell you it's £10,000, but it's reduced to 7000 And what they're trying to do is get that 10000 number in your head to make you think, oh, I'm getting a good deal because that's what it's actually worth and I'm paying less. Whereas the actual money that matters is the amount that you're going to pay for it, the 7000 And the best example I see all the time, on, especially online with this, is when people compare someone like Andy Robertson to Trent because on fantasy football they cost a similar amount and so therefore some people use Trent's price as an indication that Robertson is cheap and so from a PB perspective that trade probably doesn't make too much sense if you look at dividend returns but from a cap app perspective if you know for example that people there's always going to be some new people to the index and they're always going to compare those two prices then you can see why that might be a good trade if you are doing it for those reasons. So I find anchoring quite interesting about when people compare one person's price to another. Another good psychological factor, I think we've seen this a lot in the last week or two, is called the recency effect. I'm going to give you a list of numbers and then I'm going to ask you a question about the list. Okay. 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 So this is fun. You're not allowed to write stuff down, by the way, because that would be hands in the air. I'm not doing anything. Okay. I'll I'll take you at face value on that. (laughs) Okay. So here you go. So here's the list. The list is um, seven, four, three, six, two, five, seven, four, one, nine, six, five, two. Okay. You got that list in your head? (laughs) I try my best. What was the last number I said to you there? Um. Was it six? No, it was two. I I was thinking two in my head as well. I was like, I think it's two, but I heard him say six. <laughs> so you should have trusted your gut. What we tend to see is you people are far more likely, usually anyway, to remember the last number in the sequence than they are, say, the fifth or sixth number. And do you know what? I thought you were going to do that, so I intentionally tried to remember the first <laughs> ones. So I was like, seven, four, three, yeah, okay, good, good, good. And then you got to the end, and I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> so but like, we know generally like the most recent thing sticks out in the mind. So if you look at, and I'm not commenting on if they're good or bad trades, but just as an explanation, if you look at over the last month, if you take, say, Savania's rise... So he came on and the most recent event that happened was he scored really high in, in a short amount of time on the PB matrix and his price rocketed. And then in the next game, he did, I think he did all right for PB score, but it wasn't to the levels that perhaps some optimistically were, were hoping for for that game. And then his price dropped. Now, that's big. people are very much trading there just on the last thing that they remember from him. And to be fair, when there's lots of changes because of matrix changes and new teams, you're always trying to scramble to work out what true value is. Yeah. But it's interesting how he's still 
within those two games, he's essentially a very, he's still the same player. <laughs> but yeah, people just react, they tend to overreact to the last event that they see, which is, I think, why the now the Sunday night, Monday morning sell off is kind of built in because you have some players who you know are going to be sold off on a Monday morning even if they're then going to rise later in the week, but because people just tend to overreact to that last event that they saw. So I find that quite an interesting concept. You see that at play quite a bit, I think, on FI. Yeah, I think with players like Teji Savanir, it's it's probably, and I think this is normal with any market when something is new, that there's going to be more volatility. So there's the new scoring matrix, he's at a new team, he's just come back from injury, um, his team's not performing amazingly. So there's all these variables that you've got to consider when circumstances completely change. And I think that obviously he went really, really high. He was clearly really overbought because the data that we had on him at Montpellier was so limited that it was hard to actually for anyone to make like a foregone definite conclusion absolutely i completely agree and like the only reason i used him as an example was because like he was just like the last one quite ironically like the most recent one that was kind of fresh in my mind yeah i mean even if you look at you know the risers today Depay and trent alexander arnold are the top two you know, they both won forwards and defenders in the last, what, 10 days? So Absolutely. And yet, neither of them are... It's not a surprise that they have won, like, because they're good players for this platform. But yet, the fact they won it recently, that tends to, I think, mm. weight in people's mind. And the one other one that I thought you might find interesting, just because I don't think it's as powerful, but it's quite quirky. Is this another experiment? No, well, kind of. I like... So the concept is it's called the bizarreness effect. Okay. And it's basically a thing that says things that look different stick in your mind, essentially. Mm -hmm. And there was one research paper and I was dying to find it because I read it years ago and I haven't been able to find it again. Blonde players are more likely to get scouted in trial matches than non-blonde players because... <laughs> and it's bizarre, right? But it's just that they just stick it out in your mind. So when they do something good, you tend to remember that that thing because they already stick out. And so there are some players who, when I first joined the index, I got on early, not because I thought they were genius traits, but I was just curious to see how it works. I think you have to be a good player as well. And I'm not on some of these players anymore, so I feel like I can talk about them because it's not like a pump. But like some players don't look like other players. <laughs> so like David Luiz doesn't, and Ganduzi don't look like other players for the most part. So when they make mistakes, it's really highlighted. But sometimes that can actually work in your favour because you can get media buzz, I think. But when they do good stuff, I think they're more likely to get highlighted. Chowdhury at Leicester, I had him for like a month or two and he pretty much doubled in price and it helped that he went to the under-21s and stuff. But essentially, if he does something good, you're going to remember it. Whereas, take someone like Harry Winks, who I think footballing-wise is a better player, it's so much easier for him to blend into the background because he just mm -hmm. looks like a normal footballer should like look <laughs> i quite like those uh sort of players the one that i am on at the moment and i don't even know if it's a great hold or not but i just enjoy watching him as well is adama traore at wolves because he's so built and so muscly that he just doesn't look like most other players they apparently have to stop him going to the gym <laughs> really They've, yeah yeah i don't know i read somewhere that they have to 
he's only allowed to do like body weight exercises because they're scared of him getting too big. Right. Um, which is obviously ridiculous. I'm not saying that one thing alone makes someone a good hold or anything. I think you have to be a good player uh, as well. But like part of why I'm on the index as well is so I'm trying to make as much money as I can, but I also try and like just find it interesting and quirky to see do these things like play out and do why do some players get more attention perhaps than others and what kind of psych theories might underpin that yeah i'm just actually reading an article about him moving to england i'm trying to find the bit where he talks about him going to the gym or lack thereof i think he says i train every day with my physical coach or on social media they ask if i take something or what i do but i don't it's just prevention and physical work i don't work to get muscle because i get muscle really quickly (laughs) yeah he said i haven't lifted a single weight I know people won't believe it, but it's true. Well, that's because I don't believe that. So that's, uh, he's right there. <laughs> well, I mean, he's, yeah, he's built like an absolute steam train and he's, he's so, so, so strong. But I had a question in my head. When PB Man actually came on the show, yeah, he was talking about how everything is data, right? You know, anything we watch and see. And I think it's to that point that you made about managers only remembering 40% of things that happen on a get in a game. I think that's actually, you know, true with players that are that unique in, you know, either style or, or appearance. And when you've got someone like, um, I think we, oh, we've mentioned Haaland so many times on the show, yeah. like the last four or five weeks, probably for good, good reason or not very good reason. But when you look at someone who's like that unique in terms of their appearance and kind of like their, themselves as a physical specimen, like Adama Traore as well, you're right. Like your brain doesn't really have that much to compare it to. So... If anything, when they say Adama Traore has a stinker, um, you might probably weight the good things that he's done higher than the bad things that he's done, if that makes sense. Right. Uh, and essentially what you're describing there is like the technical term is like essentially it's called schema. It's like we all have this model of how things are meant to fit and so that we can see something and we can relate it back to a previous example. And that's kind of how we make sense of the world. But the problem with that is some of those shortcuts they don't work because we have these sort of thinking biases or what happens when we encounter someone new. So like if I could go back in time, if if FI was around 10 years ago, I would have bought Robbie Savage and Peter Crouch in a heartbeat (laughs) just because they don't like look like any other players. So I think their good stuff tends to be more, tends to be highlighted more, even though that's kind of stuff that maybe other players are doing as well. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, Peter Crouch. I mean, <laughs> prime Peter Crouch on FI would have been an interesting one. Oh, I imagine his graph would over like a year or three years would have been fascinating to see because you know he went, he scored hat tricks for Liverpool and Champions League goals, bicycle kicks, yeah, and scored winners for Tottenham that were key moments. But yeah, then also played for like Portsmouth and like I think he is a, would have been a fascinating. I think you'd have bought in and out of him several times just because. He wasn't like other players. Yeah, he certainly wasn't. Uh, Football Index MDJ or Mel says, uh, what are the three biggest psychological traps for you on Football Index and how do you overcome them? Yeah, first one, I think I'm kind of referred to it. I think everyone suffers from this confirmation bias. Is like It's really hard once you've got an idea in your head to ever see the downside of that trade and you're just dying to make it and sometimes you get people overtrade. And so that's difficult. One thing that kind of stood out for me on um, on your pod with Sam was he talked about having people to bounce ideas off to kind of get conflicting or 
not even conflicting, but just perhaps a different opinion. And so when I joined Twitter, I um I didn't really want to approach someone who's really experienced or has such a big port because I didn't want to feel like I was kind of asking for favours. And so the two people that I thought I'd give a shout out to just because I find them interesting is uh, one is Moz, who I know has been on your pod. Hmm. So he clearly knows a lot about fixtures. And the other one is um, a guy called Carl Brown, who I think is really interesting about PB and data analysis. And those are the things that I'm not great at. So I know a lot about psychology and football, but I didn't really have a lot of time to talk about fixtures. And I didn't really know that much about how the matrix worked. And so I then go like, oh, I think I really want to buy whoever, player X. And then it's just interesting to get a different viewpoint of what are their fixtures like or what's their PB scores base. Perhaps it's not very good. And that helps alleviate this confirmation bias because it's actively seeking alternate viewpoints. So I think everyone should do that. And that's different from like, I think, doing a big public. What do people think about X? Because all all you want when you say that often is is praise, really, or like confirmation. Maybe people don't value the argument against that tweet that could come above it, if that makes sense. Like you tweet about a player, you are in the back of your mind probably looking for confirmation, as you mentioned there. But I wonder how few of the community posts a player and are kind of thinking of, please, someone convince me not to buy him. And And I understand that because you have to acknowledge, I guess, that market value like cap app is a factor in the equation and so you don't want someone talking down players who you want other people to invest in because it's not just dividends that's not the only way to make money but i think the parts i like on twitter so for example um mdj's blogs around i've got three different strands and here how they're doing good bad or otherwise that's the sort of content i think the community needs because that's just having a almost like a non-biased view. I'm just letting you know what's happening and what didn't go well so everyone can make more informed opinions and hopefully everyone can then make more money. Mm. Second psychological trap, there's a concept called the halo effect. The halo effect basically says um, first impressions tend to be lasting impressions and we quite find it quite hard to shake an early impression of a player. So when I joined the index six months ago, and I was coming from it mainly from having played fantasy football. I remember asking a few people on Twitter, why is Kevin De Bruyne so cheap? Like, <laughs> it just didn't make sense. And at the time, everyone said, oh, it's because he's not great for the Matrix and Man City tend to rotate a lot. Um, and I think he was at about £2 at the time. And that was probably true at the time. But then with all the Matrix changes and dividend changes, that's clearly not the case now. But yet struggling, it probably took me about a month more than it should have to purchase him now because so I bought him about two or three months ago, but because I had it in my head for so long that he just wasn't a football index player, even though the situation had changed because that first impression was quite a lasting impression. And then the third and final uh, trap is something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And the Dunning-Kruger effect is awesome. Based from researchers in Harvard uh, University, and they tell the story that their research came about because there's a guy called MacArthur Wheeler in America, and he's known as being the worst bank robber ever in America. And he got this title because he robbed a bank, and then later when he got arrested at home, he couldn't work out how the police caught him because 
he knew when he was younger, lemon juice worked as invisible ink. And so he thought if he put lemon juice on his face, it, the CCTV wouldn't see him because he'd be invisible. And these researchers from Harvard were found this amazing that someone could be so incompetent, but yet so confident. And they've done years of research on this, which basically found there's an inverse relationship, basically, between expertise and confidence. So basically, at the start, when things are going really well, you think it's really easy. And that's like when I started, I was going, I was just make like loads of players because it was, I think, in a 10% boom, were just rocketing. And I was going, this is the easiest thing in the world. How is everyone not earning 30% a month or something crazy? And then actually, the more you develop your skills and the more you learn about the platform, actually, you realize the more nuanced it is, the more like kind of shades of gray. And so what we tend to actually see is experts are more likely to be self-critical and doubt themselves because they realize how much they don't know or how much is down to randomness or chance or luck. Mm. Whereas actually, it's the novices or people who are at the start of their journey tend to be overly confident. And so the trap I tend to fall into is they're like, don't believe anyone who says anything with like 100% certainty, because either they, it just means that they're not experts, or they're trying to sell you something. <laughs> Whereas the people who talk about their mistakes and who doubt themselves or who question stuff, they're the people I find quite interesting. And they're the ones who tend to, over long periods of time, get better because they've done that self-reflection. So I kind of always try and catch myself not to get too cocky because the truth is it's a growing market and most people are making money whether they're good traders or not. So I shouldn't just think that it's all easy and that it'll always be that way. How do you try and avoid that though? Because it is the natural conclusion to come to. Right. So what I've started doing now is I've started measuring myself against the footy as opposed to just my portfolio because... If I'm only performing as well as the market, it clearly means some of my trades are not great trades. So I think that helps. But also I think just having a being a bit open about your mistakes, celebrating your successes, but also acknowledging the randomness and chance. So for example, I always wanted to buy into Jorginho quite early when I joined the index, but I was umming and ahhing and I bought into it like literally the day before he just went absolutely crazy. And I have to acknowledge that there's quite a bit of randomness and luck that I bought into him on that day. And that is not all down to me being brilliant and being an expert trader. It's It was just quite lucky I didn't buy him the two days afterwards. So I think partly is not attributing all of your success to yourself. Uh, a coach once told me anyone who doesn't attribute at least part of their success to luck um, doesn't understand what caused their success. <laughs> Because if it's not partly down to luck, you'd be able to do it on every trade. And you clearly can't do it on every trade. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I suppose unless you've analysed why you're buying a player in a different way to another one, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess so. And I think the other good way of overcoming it is just remember that like, no one really knows anything for certain because everyone's just guessing and making educated guesses, but guesses at that. And so if the experts don't really know, then... Why would anyone else? Like my favorite example of this, I, I don't know if you've ever seen the graphic that kind of does the roundabout once a year of in 2006, the Daily Mail got their chief sports reporters. So like the absolute experts and they've watched loads of matches, have access to all the coaches and teams. They got them to predict who was going to be in the England World Cup team 10 years later. So this is for the 2016 World Cup. 
And they didn't just have to pick youngsters. They could pick anyone playing at any stage. I pulled up the team earlier because I thought it's quite interesting. Here's who they thought in 2006 was going to be in the 2016 England team. So in goal was Ben Amos. Uh, the back four <laughs> was Robbie Threlfell, Gavin Hoyt, Mika Richards and Sam Hutchinson. Uh, they went for a midfield three of Dean Parrott, Michael Johnson and James Henry. And the up front trio was Scott Sinclair, Jose Baxter and Theo Walcott. And like, I look at that and I go, if the absolute experts couldn't predict who's going to be in the England team, then like, I shouldn't ever be arrogant to assume that like, I know better. And everyone's just guessing to an extent. Mm. And even if you look at the last England team, you don't have to in 10 years. Like if you could have done it four years ago, no way did people have Eric Dyer, Marcus Rashford, Harry Kane. I mean, I heard of Clive Allen on the radio yesterday talking about he used to be Harry Kane's striker coach at Tottenham Academy. And he wasn't sure Harry Kane was even going to make it to a premiership <laughs> level. And he gets to see him every day. So it just goes to show you that anyone who goes... Ah, uh, this player is guaranteed to be a star in five or ten years' time. It's not a complete guess, it's an educated guess, but a guess nonetheless. Yeah, and I think the further away something is, the harder it is to make that prediction. So even, yeah, as you said, four years is tough, ten years is almost impossible. I mean, if you look at a player from 16 to 26, they're, they've become a professional and they've hit their peak. Yeah. Right? That's a long period. Yeah. I reckon... And everyone thinks they can, but that's the beauty of it is I don't think most people could get more than half, maybe half of the England football team for the next World Cup. The next World Cup, yeah. Because you just don't know how injuries are going to play out. You don't know how loss of form is going to matter. You don't know who's going to emerge. Essentially because development isn't linear. It's never a straight line. So like, it's really hard to know. Very hard indeed. Uh, We'll move on to our next question. Moz, a guy that you paid a big compliment to earlier, said... How much of an impact do you think psychology has on a trader? Can you be a good trader without having a fit psychological mind? And does psychology control the market? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's definitely important and it definitely plays a role. We know if you just take trading out of it, if you just look at decision making, of which I guess trading is a subsection, when people are emotional, when people are tired, uh, when they're hungry, people tend not to think at their best in those conditions. I remember hearing you talk about uh, Matthew Walker's book about sleep on one of your podcasts. Yeah. So like, he's like the absolute expert on sleep, right? And it's one of the things that I can't remember what the stat was that I think 40%, you get a 40% reduction of memory the next day if you've had a really bad night's sleep and you're yeah. way more likely to remember the negative stuff than the positive. And so clearly that's kind of self-management does play a role. And I think we'll probably come on to it later because it was one of, uh, a tweet that a lot of people kind of interacted with, but like, the fear of missing out, of not being on a trade that's doing well, when that ingrains in your mind, that's a really hard thing to get out of. And you see people acting really rationally and they buy a player, I think, and I've done it as well, that half an hour before I hadn't even considered. <laughs> but that fear of missing out when you see a rise or if you see a good performance is, I think it affects everyone. Yeah, I, it's really hard to ignore, isn't it? I mean... The worst bit is when you don't have the cash to boot because if you have another bit of cash that can come externally and you can deposit and buy some players without touching the rest of your portfolio, then it's kind of a different story. But if you have like you're at your limit or you don't want to deposit any more, 
and you have to move things around that's when your mind just starts playing tricks on you it becomes a bit layered because then you're like oh should i instant sell this player oh actually he's got this spread well i'll instant sell this guy because he's got a smaller spread well actually i i kind of want to hold him because i think he's going to rise it just becomes like a, a battle within yourself Right, of course, that leads to like this vicious cycle. So you instant sell one player to get on this rise, and then you're so annoyed when that... Because you bought that first player for a reason, and that reason doesn't change just because that other player is doing well. And so when that reason kicks in and that original player starts rising, you then get FOMO again on missing out on that original player that you had. And so you buy back in probably at a higher price, and you IS someone else to buy into that player. And that vicious cycle just kind of continues. Very vicious indeed. Uh, F.I. Spartacus here. To what degree would a better understanding of the psychology of trading improve outcomes for traders? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I think understanding the psychology of decision making, of trading, of how you perform at your best affects everyone of all walks of life. I was trying to think earlier about how it's most, what parts of it are most relevant to F.I. And I think there are about three conditions that I think psychology can really make an impact i think when things are subjective and so therefore it's quite hard to assess value uh when things are emotional and when you know there's a consequence of of failing that's when knowing of a bit about psychology i think can be really helpful and of course all those three things are abundant in fi Uh, it's subjective because everyone has a different opinion about football it's obviously emotional because most people i think who trade a lot of them do love watching football as well and of course, there is a very real consequence because it's not monopoly money. Like people are playing with sometimes very large amounts and a high percentage of their savings or perhaps even overdrawing. So there is a real consequence to getting it wrong. So all these three things kind of combine, I think, make FI quite a hotbed for having an understanding of why some players rise and why some trades are good value. It makes it really important, I think. Yeah, it's. Uh certainly is a really important aspect i think when i had the trading grandmaster ivan Bayaji, he was talking a lot about kind of like how he doesn't believe at all in technical analysis and i know it's slightly different in fi because a lot of the all the value is kind of data driven right at the end of the day it's whether or not a player is going to return dividends that makes them value and you can only look at the the top of the market see that in neymar etc but is interesting to think about that kind of psychological side, especially during the transfer window, I find. I mean, you look at, you know, recency bias and, and so on and so forth from the PB standpoint, but I just find FI a fascinating time when transfer windows come around. Well, see, I've only been through one, and that was a bit of a turning point for me because before the summer transfer window, so I had I came in at the 10% deposit bonus time and everything was flying, then had the Euro under-21s, which basically consists of pick the three best players in each team, and your port was going to do well. And the first time I really got stung was with when Christian Eriksen didn't go to Man United. He dropped significantly. And that was the first time I felt, oh, I actually veered into an area that isn't my knowledge. Like my knowledge, I think, is about how people think and what people might be betting on in the future. Whereas actually here, I was betting on an event that I had absolutely no control over. And so that's why... I'm currently umming and ahhing over whether to really go again on the January transfer window or to sit it out. I don't know, maybe you've got some advice. You've been through a few windows. What do you think of it? I quite enjoy the transfer window because I've usually been quite good at predicting transfers and maybe not 
transfers in terms of individuals, but I more look at kind of the areas that teams need. So, for example, over the last summer, it was very clear that a lot of teams needed centre-backs. And the previous summer before that, it was a lot of teams needing central midfielders. So that was when you saw um, Fred, the Jorginho transfer, and so on and so forth. So it was cut for me, it's always been identifying weak spots in the bigger teams and thinking about um, what is the most likely outcome for that. And also in trying to accumulate those players that are the best or like big fishes in small ponds. So very good players at small teams or teams that are quite prone to selling. So I've always been quite good in that. But I think the previous summer took me slightly by surprise in terms of how little activity was done. So maybe that was kind of a very much an outlier and kind of my strategy should always be the same in every window. Um, I was just kind of unlucky that in this previous summer, we kind of saw something that isn't really too often in terms of, you know, Chelsea having a transfer ban, um, Man City, uh, Liverpool not buying anyone at all. Uh, You know, if you think about it, Arsenal and Spurs were two of the biggest spenders, which is really unlikely. So it was it was quite interesting, and maybe that was kind of a mishap on my my part in terms of not understanding the the footballing environment as well as I used to. Maybe, but I don't know. For me, I would have just like I've personally just struck that off as kind of a an outlier in in terms of transfer window times. See, that tempts me to get back in then for January. <laughs> Well, not necessarily, because I think Investor was on the podcast last week, FI Investor, and he talked about how he completely stayed away with it, away from it. One, because he knows that's what he's not good at. Yeah. Two, he didn't want to get into the kind of short-term swings. And three, he thought that he could accumulate players at like a, a low price. And if you imagine like a player's graph, and if you imagine kind of like what it almost looked like when a player bottoms out is kind of like a bed just like a straight line and like yeah. a or like a, a curve at the bottom if you'd accumulate a player that you think longer term is very good at that kind of like curve at the bottom a lot of that player that you can sometimes be you can be really lucky and make yourself a lot of money from that player i mean i look at like nicola pepe for example recently yeah and i'm not advocating him as a buy or someone you should hold or someone you should sell but if you look at his graph his three-month graph or even his one-month graph he goes from 281 he drops to about 240 and he literally hovers at 240 for probably two or three weeks and then he's up to like three quid now so if you look at those like two or three weeks you're looking at an opportunity for you where you could have bought a hell of a lot in that two or three week period of a player that ended up rising you know 20 percent and winning some dividends so there are going to be opportunities whether or not you participate in that kind of like transfer saga scenario well one thing's always remember i can't remember which one of your former guests said it but he was saying if he getting his tactic was to get in early enough so therefore you're not worried about getting the very last few drops I think it's Soccer Index. Very smart guy. Yeah, um, I, I, he, thought, I thought that was a good he, point. Yeah, what he does is he just gets on trends. I've been speaking to him recently and he's just been talking about like already loading up on January transfers and that might not be my style, but it's worked for him and he kind of talks about like how he wants to cr- catch like you know, 50, 60, 70% of a rise. He's not worth, he's not really bothered about the last, yeah, 20, 30%. And I actually did a a video a while ago called 
why selling early isn't always a bad thing. And the reason is that if you catch 70 or 80% of a rise, not the 10% at the beginning and not the 10% at the end, that's actually better than catching the whole rise. And the reason being is that you can actually move that 80% profit into another hold that is like what we were just discussing with Pepe that hasn't moved up. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Uh, we've got plenty more questions, though, because I've, I've gone on a bit of a tangent, haven't I? Uh, Grinder suits the new matrix from Slack. To what extent does implicit bias and emotional contagion play a part between index traders? And did it have anything to do with Chrissy Wade's uh, haircut? Is that how you pronounce that name? Well, I'm assuming Chrissy Waddle, maybe? I don't Waddle, know. yeah. It's probably Chrissy Waddle. It's got to be. Although he's spelt Chrissy as in, it's kind of like abbreviated for a woman. But anyway, sorry. Can you explain what implicit bias and emotional contagion are, first and foremost? Sure. Um, okay, so implicit bias, let's kind of, on a basic level, is similar to like stereotyping, essentially. And this is, a, again, what we were kind of saying earlier. It's a way that sometimes for the brain to make a shortcut, to make a quick decision of how do I think... Who is this player similar to is a good example of seeing it. But people get this wrong all the time. So, for example, when Pogba came onto the scene, it was really lazy and easy to say he was the new Patrick Vieira <laughs> because they're both really tall. Uh, they both play in centre midfield, both French, uh, both black athletes. But his game is completely different to Vieira's. And so I saw one really interesting research done or based on the Houston Rockets, uh, the basketball team in America. Yeah. They've instructed their scouts they are not allowed to compare a new player to another player of the same nationality or race. Because <laughs> it just leads to being lazy. So, like, the classic in football is the amount of times I have heard of the new Messi, and it's either because he's been Argentinian or come through Barcelona's youth academy. Or even worse, if they're left-footed and they're, like, right. you know, the Korean Messi or the Italian Messi or even though I think Italian... Yeah, and so that's Italian quite Messi, a good way anyway. of <laughs> getting out of that bias is who is this player similar to but who they don't look like or don't happen to be born from a different city that's within the same country but actually 100 miles away? I don't know how much, if I'm honest, that affects the um, football index trading. I think the emotional contagion one's more interesting so most contagion is basically, sometimes it's referred to, it's quite similar to what's known as the bandwagon effect, right? Essentially, you do stuff because everyone else is doing it. Um, big companies do this all the time. So like McDonald's always advertise that they've sold 99 billion burgers or something. And eBay, if you go on eBay, eBay's full of how many people have watched this in the last 24 hours? How many people have bought this? How many people have given good feedback? They're all trying to send the same message of, lots of other people are interested or have bought this product. And you see that happen all the time on Football Index. So you mentioned Depay today with his big rise. Whether or not you think Depay is good value given the new dividend change, there are definitely some people out there today who spent hundreds if not thousands of pounds on him because they saw everyone else doing the same. For them, they weren't thinking of if he's good value or not. And the problem with that is... At some stage, if that's your approach, you're always going to get stung because at some stage you like you won't always be the fastest finger there. And sometimes that can be a good thing to get on a rise early, but usually most people's good trades are ones that, at least if they haven't explicitly thought about doing that trade at that particular time, there's been some forethought beforehand. So, for example, if, say, you mentioned Haaland earlier, 
maybe if enough stuff's been bubbling away and I've given it some thought and then I see lots of people going for it because something's happened, that makes sense in terms of like being a good trade. But if I've never even heard of him before <laughs> and I just see everyone piling in money to a player, like that's the bandwagon effect and that's kind of at least that FOMO of feel missing out. And that's, I think, when people often make poor trades. Mm, that's really, really interesting. I think it's, you know, it's so closely linked to to FOMO and that kind of effect that, you know, the likes of eBay and then whoever else have, but connected to recency bias for the FI standpoint. With Depay and the likes, it's been really interesting to see how the data was all there, yeah. but it's largely ignored, right? And I guess partly what makes it interesting is, on one hand, it can be a good strategy because, as I mentioned before, like the cap app of a player has is part of the equation. So if I'm buying because I think everyone else is going to buy, and I'm happy then to get out of that trade, then that makes sense. But like, so many of the time is um, the information's always there, and that's always, as you said, the trade is, isn't finding new information; it's separating the good information from the bad information is the big challenge. It is indeed. We've got another question here by F.I. Gardner that you said you were a big fan of. For me, FOMO is a killer, but your Twitter thread helped me evaluate how I was trading and how to overcome it. Would you say knowing yourself and your psychological weaknesses is more important than knowing the market? Uh, Okay, so two parts that. Uh, So FOMO, I think you have to accept if you're going to be on F.I., you're always going to have it to a degree because either you have lots of shares in a few players in which case you're going to get FOMO because you're going to miss on some risers, or you spread yourself thin and you have a few shares in lots of players, and that way you're still going to get FOMO because you're going to be annoyed that you didn't have more shares. This is, of course, apart from like the few accounts which are huge accounts and have the luxury of having lots of players and lots of shares. So you're always going to have FOMO to an extent, and it's just like to kind of learn to live with, I guess. Is it more important knowing yourself than knowing the market? I don't actually think so. Probably sounds counterintuitive coming from a psychologist, but I think sometimes the psychology part can be overplayed. So to give an example, I'm fairly good at knowing when I'm doing good trades and when I'm kind of rushing and doing bad trades. But when I joined, I didn't know the market well enough. So at the start of the season, I was looking at Inter Milan midfielders and I went for Barella because I love watching him play. And he's done really well for me since I think he's up about 50%. But I didn't go in for Sensi because I didn't understand the market well enough and what actually was okay. going to drive pricing. So for me, if I could go back, I wish I'd have known the market more then. And I don't think I could overcome that by just being a good psychologist. Like I'm definitely a better psychologist than I'm a trader. And there's definitely way better traders out there than me. I think the two can complement each other. But I think knowing the market, because it is quite a fascinating, quite a unique market, Football Index. Yeah. And I think nothing beats experience. And that's why I think people have been on it a long time. Not only have they got great stories of how much profit they've made, but I also think there's a good chance if they're adaptable, they'll be the ones who continue to make big money because they've just got more reference points. Their schema of football index is larger and more intricate. So essentially, you know how to handle the transfer window better than I do because you've lived and breathed and had those experiences. And I think that stuff pays off massively. Mm. Certainly an interesting thing to think about that kind of experience point, because I guess adversely it could also build bad habits, I suppose. Or Oh, absolutely. Like one example I found when I first joined, because I joined after the share split, was I always giggled when everyone was talking about old money. 
versus like new money and what this player would have cost in old money. And just because I had no reference to what they, people were talking about, right? And I'm convinced for some people, they look back and they would have done stuff differently given how the platform's gone in the last six months. But if you are still so fixed on what was, the danger, I guess, as you allude to, is you're not focusing on what is at the moment. Indeed. Uh, move on to the last question before the little ad break here. Football Index Focus. This was a really interesting one, actually. Does obsession with buy price, are oh, we're really going to get into this, rather than sell price against the market rate of a player mean that traders are costing themselves profit for holding on to a player for too long? Yeah, okay. So, like, the buy price thing versus sell price is interesting, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking to earlier, I think, about this anchoring. So if I buy a player for a pound... That pound gets anchored in my brain because I see that all the time. And that's a constant, essentially, in my portfolio, unless I top up. And I think there are two dangers of dwelling on one's buy price. One is um, I think you can get a bit lazy just admiring profit because every time I see that player who was a pound is now at £2.50, I give myself a pat on the back for being really clever for buying him at a pound. And I just admire some of the profit I've made. And as kind of they referred to in the question... I think it can distract people from the more relevant price, which is the sell price, because that's what their current value is. So I definitely have one or two players in my port who have risen really well, and I love seeing that in my port. But every now and again, I do have to remind myself and go, would I buy him at that price? That's the important question. Yeah, and I know it's been said loads, but it is so true. It's like, if I wouldn't buy him, why would I keep him at that price? I've done some nice research on this uh, in America for people who have, like holiday homes or like second houses but on like part of like a timeshare that you can kind of buy into and what they found is people who've kind of got this like a holiday home they don't want to ever sell their second holiday home but they wouldn't buy it for the price it's currently worth <laughs> if they had to start from scratch like from right now which is really interesting i think the same thing happens a bit on football index like it is fascinating and then the other thing you have is um if you want the lovely screenshots of a hundred percent rise then that buy price really weighs in on your mind because you you don't ever want that number to go up, I guess. <laughs> it's a bit crazy, isn't it? I mean, I really don't understand it. Is it just because it looks good? Like, is that the thing? Uh, essentially, yeah. It looks good. That earlier price is, is anchored in. So then to buy in at 250 now makes it now seem as a more expensive play, even though that's not actually accurate. And I guess also you have to, I guess, acknowledge that like, a lot of people on the index absolutely to maximize and optimize to a very 100% their trade. For some yeah. people, they just do it because it's fun. And it is quite fun to be able to go, I bought Jaden Sancho at ATP or whatever it was, and now he's worth more. And like, look, here's the proof. Like, look how much money you can make on the index. And like, if that's their motivation, that's why they do it, then fair play to them if it's part of a trading strategy then yeah it seems slightly bonkers i guess did you see the poll that i put out the other day i saw you were putting out i didn't i haven't checked in to see what the result was i even voted on it <laughs> so i said might sound like a silly question but bear with have you ever been hesitant to withdraw or deposit on football index in fear of damaging your return on investment and 24 percent of people said yes and then the follow-up poll, which is, I think, probably the most important one. Have you ever been hesitant to deposit on Football Index in fear of d damaging your ROI? And 16% of people said yes. If you're guys at Football Index, if you're a marketing person in Football Index, do you look at something like that and think, wow, we might actually be 
stopping people depositing because we don't have the proper kind of functionality and kind of the analytics of a portfolio to show um, certain profit or loss or um, ROI metrics. I'd be amazed if it wasn't something they were looking at just because I think you've heard it from so many traders, the all time seven day and 24 hour is just not accurate because I guess it only shows your current port, not your time on, on FI. And so you have loads of people doing it manually themselves. I mean, that's 16%. I mean, you're always going to get like a bell curve distribution. So you're always going to get outliers on any question. So I don't know what number I'd expect to see. I, If I had to guess, I would have thought it would have gone the other way of like, I think people depositing too much and probably more than they can actually afford because it is a gambling platform would be more of an issue for most people as like, have you invested more than you thought you would have as opposed to, have you stopped putting money in? So yeah, quite interesting results, I thought. Yeah, I think that's also an issue. But I guess, I don't know, I always think about like, how much are you going to, it depends how much you would gamble in the first place and whether or not you're buying stocks and you've stopped buying stocks and shares, for example. So I don't know, say you're a football index trader, or you're on FI, and you would usually gamble, I know, let's say, three and a half thousand pounds a year on bet 365 but you'd also buy i don't know 6k's worth of stocks and obviously they're not bets but in some ways they are whether or not their price goes up or down dictates whether or not you're going to make any money again that some of them will return dividends etc etc then if someone stops gambling then deposits say you know, three and a half K into FI or takes half of their stocks out, which again, I'm not advocating for any of this, do whatever you feel comfortable doing with your money and then puts it into into FI. FI. I don't know. Like it's it's just, I think the question about being overextended on deposits, it depends on where else you have money, I guess. Yeah. I mean, and so what you were describing about just essentially moving around where I place my gambling funds, that wouldn't be a cause of concern for me. But like generally, like I've taken people in the past to Sporting Chance Clinic for like gambling addiction. Like it is an issue. And like I would want to know, I'm curious. I'm, in fact, it might be worth doing a poll at some stage. How many people have either done it or considered taking out a loan and going, I don't mind paying the 5% loan because I'm going to bet that I can make more of that on the platform. And I just wonder how many people kind of overextend themselves doing that or even like doing family savings and not telling their partner about how much they've gotten to yeah just because it is such a growth market at the moment the temptation i'm convinced must be there for some people and that i guess is potentially worrying yeah i guess you know when the fun stops stop i've started saying that at the end of every pod just to kind of remind people that yeah. this is a, a gambling platform and that's why i've started doing a bit of that stuff in some of my tweets just because i kept seeing so many dodgy pumpers go like it can only go one way and i think it's so easy to believe that because the market is growing and i think it is a fantastic platform but like it is a gambling platform and it should as well as making money it should be fun and that's why i think having a good online community allows people just to be able to 
check in with each other and make sure that's still the case yeah certainly so um i'm going to now plug index gain so as you guys would have seen in last sunday's pod i told you that they are now going to be powered by opta uh, world leaders in sports data so they're going to have a fur they've got a opta driven report out now the omd screener allowing you to search filter rank and sort players based on your choice of criteria using a blend of football index and opta stats and so over the coming days, every single attribute from the new Football Index Matrix will be available on the site. And I think they are now, which is pretty incredible. And that's for every match day dividend league, for every match day dividend tournament, and including Euro 2020 qualifiers. And if you guys want to check more of Index Gain out and their amazing platform, then uh, FIG 2020 for 50% of your first month over on indexgain.co.uk. And uh, I don't know if, if you're a user, Sigmund. I couldn't imagine being on the platform without it. Um, I think it's awesome. I can't sing the praise enough. As well as just the analytical tools, I just quite like the Slack community. I think there's quite a good dry sense of humour on there. <laughs> and a bunch of people who are just willing to help other people out as well. A glowing endorsement. Yeah, no, I'm a big fan. <laughs> I've got a question here from the Index Mule. How do you assess when to sell a player? Top end players tend to be long term holds. IPD players flipped around thirty days depending on fixtures. What about the middle of the market? One to three pounds mark. What makes you realise a player may or may or not have peaked or exceeded his value versus dividend return? I'm probably not the best person to answer this in the sense of, on my reflection, I did a thing of like reflecting on how my first six months has gone on the market. Um, buying players is well easy. Selling them is the hardest thing on Football Index. I'd say I'm okay at it now. Uh, the one thing I've stopped doing, and this is just my personal preference, so I'm not advocating this for everyone or anything, is I've now stopped setting targets or goals Um based around how much I want to be earning overall and also from each player because I think it just creates a ceiling and in such a growth market the value of players and what they're worth is is constantly changing so I don't want to be too rigid I quite I have quite a lot of time because I travel quite a lot for work so I'm on the index quite a lot so I want to enjoy trading but I don't want to be like handcuffed to any set rigid numbers because I did that when I started I look back and I was so happy when I made my 15% on Tony Cruz and whenever it was the summer, because I felt that was a good ceiling for him. Uh, and that was madness. And so I think sometimes selling based on fixed rigid rules doesn't help. Um, I think it also probably leads to chasing bad trades, uh, I guess. How do I assess when to sell players? I try not to be greedy, I guess for me, is like if I've made what I consider to be a good profit, I'm quite happy to exit that trade. I think the key for me is, so taking IPD players as, as an example, I guess, um, I tend to buy them a bit earlier than their good fixtures because A, I'm banking on A, making up the difference when everyone else starts buying them, and B, I really want to market sell them at the end. Um, I thought your last pod when um, I can remember which of the two guests were saying it about there's no point earning IPDs just to wipe them out and having to IS them afterwards was spot on so i basically work out when to sell a player based on is there a story or a narrative that other people are telling themselves as to why they should buy that player yes it might mean i miss a bit of the rise but for those who want i don't really mind that because i don't really like instant selling 
Yeah, I think you need to look at players in that kind of narrative-driven way. And the reason I say that is because any player has kind of a next checkpoint for a reason they're going to rise or fall. Yeah. And I always look at a player and I think, what are the next checkpoints that can make them rise? And how many of them are there in front of him? Because if there's only two, then I might consider selling a few when that next checkpoint's reached. But if there's a player, and this could be a young player, this could be someone that's just broken onto the scene, this could be a, a guy that's improved drastically, this could be someone that has amazing fixtures in front of them and you know, a summer tournament, a transfer, whatever, all these different things that could make a player spike in value or more valuable from a dividend underlying dividend standpoint, I tend to think of as checkpoints. And when thinking about when to sell someone, I think how many more of those do they have in front of them? Absolutely. And I think that needs, I guess, constant re-evaluation because I guess it's no secret the last month, two to three pound PB midfielders have done really well in terms of getting more value. But therefore, I guess it makes sense then I need to constantly reevaluate what I think that player's ceiling might be because it's constantly being stretched at the moment. So I guess that's quite a key factor. But it is generally, I think, the hardest part of the index because there's a good chance you're going to sell a player who you can easily convince yourself in a couple of weeks you want to buy back again. Very much so. And yeah, it happens all the time, um, all the time that you want to buy someone back, but you don't want to because they've hurt you before or yeah. you've sold them at cheap or whatever. It's, yeah, it's it's such an interesting phenomenon. I think it goes the other way as well. So there's always one or two players who I'm constantly coming back to because for a period of time they did me well. And so I have like an affection or affiliation, I feel like, towards them that I just yeah. kind yeah. of trust that it's going to be the same again this time. Isn't always the same. <laughs> Never go back. <laughs> <laughs> Radio Carport here from the forum. Uh, does day trading, for those who have the time, lead to higher profits sooner than long-term trading? There seems to be quite a difference in opinion on this with some traders vowing that long-term holds making the most of the three-year lifespan is the way to go, whereas others swear by jumping quickly from one trade to another trying to ride the waves by continually and frequently selling on rises and buying dips? Oh, good question. Probably not my place to say which is which is more profitable. I tend not to think about it as day trading versus long term. I guess it's more about finding a style that suits suits you. So, And the two things that I guess I measure that on is time and funds. So if I have a lot of time, like I reckon I check the index regularly. Like I commute like two hours a day. So I'm on the index quite a bit. It therefore, it makes more sense to me, I guess, to be a short-term trader because I have the time to do that. Uh, another thing is, I guess, funds, because I think it's really easy to post big ROI numbers when you've got limited funds. But if you're going to buy thousands of shares in a player, I think it makes more sense, I guess, to be mainly more long-term trading because it's going to be expensive those players the players prices are going to rise if you're buying cheap players with that amount of shares um so it's hard to make short-term value off those i guess yeah i guess it's so like i think it's just good to to i guess vary it and um experiment so like i very much used to be short-term ipds fixtures form because that's more of the psychology part of it for me but yet you can't ignore like as soon as they announced that there was going to be a dividend review like the logical trade was to go in for PB players because that's what most people were guessing 
was going to be what the announcement was. And even now, I still actually think we haven't seen the full value, the ripples of that announcement haven't finished yet by a long shot. So I guess it's not about one being better than the other. I guess it's what's right for you and also what's right for the market at the time and what the cycle might be about. I don't know. What do you think? I think it has to suit you. Like people talk about opportunity costs a lot, but the thing that could be costly you know is not just money it could be time it could be what else you could be doing with that time so i don't think that you know someone who spends 30 hours a week on fi compared to someone three hours a week on fi should if the person who's spent three hours on fi makes more money or less money they shouldn't compare the kind of input that they've yeah, yeah. from a time standpoint put into and i think i tweeted the other day about how personally i prefer kind of doing more sprints and spurts of energy into fi i don't tend to think okay right like it's in my diary to do research for 45 minutes a day or whatever i tend to work better when i have like two or three hours every two weeks to kind of really drill down on what's really working for me and what's not and what holds are you know reevaluating those holds that I have every two or three weeks, whatever, that tends to work for me, but it might not work for someone else. So I think it's just finding what best suits you and you know what you enjoy most. I think money, time, enjoyment, these are all factors that you should kind of put into this equation when working out what you should be doing. In terms of kind of like what is more profitable, again, like there are people that make a lot of money from long-term trades going on, a big on players i think you mentioned pb man there earlier you know look at his latest tweet he's not done too badly he's not a guy that does any day trading uh whereas you look at someone like um ginger pirlo who's part of the um newsletter he does quite well trading in and out of players quite regularly so it's a mix and so does uh football index as as well if you want to follow someone who does a lot of in-play trading I think it's got to see your, um, like each one requires different set of psychological skills. So I think if you're going to do um, long-term trading, you have to be comfortable with being patient and having good impulse control. Whereas if you're going to do day trading, there is more volatility in that. You might get burnt at times. So I think having good emotional control and not getting, letting the frustration um, get the better of you is perhaps more important skill for day trading. So it's about knowing what your psychological makeup is, I think, a bit as well, tends to help with that. Yeah, it's certainly a really hard question to answer overall. And I think that it's almost impossible to generalise, which is the most important thing, I think. Totally. Got another question here from FI Headhunter. I should really... uh, stop including all his questions I, I like his eggs. questions I, I love his questions yeah, as well which is part of the reason I, I ask them all the time but I'm, I feel like it eggs him on I think <laughs> three three is going to turn into four five or six so quite you're, soon you're turning into an enabler now yeah <laughs> uh, do you think there are more people on the index with an investment mentality or more with a gambling mentality and which of these two groups do you think will have greater long-term success on the index in terms of ROI and why I guess the first question to ask from that is what is the difference between an index uh, investment mentality and a gambling one? Um, I would imagine, I'm just guessing here, I imagine gamblers tend to be more focusing on short-term wins when investment mentality might be more towards a long-term approach. 
I mean, I think there is a thin line between gambling and, and investment. It's just about your level of risk because you get risky investments and you get pretty low risk investments as well. So I think there's probably a small line between them. Um, I was someone sent me um, a thing about gambling mindset uh, relating to um I'm sure you're probably familiar with it about the gambler's fallacy. So that's kind of... No, you know, okay, so, okay, so it's, it's quite cool. So gambling fallacy is um, you think... So like, let's say you're playing roulette. If you've seen it's been read five times in a row, the gambler's fallacy is you go, well, surely the odds say it's got to be black this time <laughs> because it's been read so many times. But of course, each spin is independent, right? So like, it literally makes no difference what's happened previously especially if you look at it in a short time like over ten thousand spins would expect 50 50 but easily within 10 spins you could easily get six reds in a row or seven reds in a row no problem and so you do get more cognitive biases i think when it comes to gambling and one famous example of the gambler's fallacy and i've got to credit him because i didn't know about this before he told it to me um again a great twitter name uh bob's your uncle fi um <laughs> genius name uh sent it to me about how if you google the number 53 in an italian lottery so apparently the number 53 hadn't come up for years in the italian lottery and so with this gambler's fallacy everyone was piling money onto number 53 because <laughs> they're going surely it must come in and people were putting their pension and taking out loans just to like kind of bet high stakes on, on this number but of course what happens previously has no bearing on that next event and this has been studied in sport quite a lot. And it's known as the hot hand fallacy, which basically looks at... Yeah, with basketball players. Yeah, and there's some dispute. So the research is a bit mixed because the original researchers, there's been different statistical analysis. Some people say it is more likely. But essentially, it just shows what it really gets to at its core is people want to find patterns where patterns don't exist because we want the world to make sense because we want to be able to compartmentalise and box it. So... If player X hasn't scored uh, or he's scored in three of his last away games or if he got two assists in his last game, for some players that might, because they're good players, that might be an example of how they are. That is their level and would he be able to expect them to do something similar next time? Whereas other players, I think we have to acknowledge that like... So I was at Tottenham the other week where Serge Aurier got two assists. Like... It would be mad to think he's going to get two assists per game. He's more likely to give away two penalties per game than get two assists. But it's really easy. If you fall for that gambler's fallacy of you think that pattern should be there, then that leads to, I think, you being susceptible to someone going, this player is likely to do this in this next game. Whereas what we're saying is actually when you look at bets is, how is this player going to do over a season? I can make more of a bet educated guess on that than i can just on this next game i think if you have that gambler's mindset it might lead you down into riskier trades yeah yeah i think the other thing is as well some of those patterns might be outliers like as you mentioned that the aurea to assist i think we saw sergio ramos take a hell of a lot of penalties at the beginning of last season we've seen parejo take a lot of penalties at the beginning of this season and sometimes that breeds kind of uncertainty as to whether or not more people will buy a player and i think that's a very risky but good opportunity sometimes where you can spot a pattern that is not an outlier if that makes sense so if you see a player has scored five goals this season and their highest ever tally is was six goals in a previous season then is that it has he just done really really well for 10 games and he's not going to score like that for the 
you know the rest of the season yeah or is this kind of a breakout season and it's you know the more and more we dig into it with underlying stats the easier it is to work out but i do think finding players like that it's it's a big opportunity isn't it totally so to give you an example um last season i was tracking i think i started it from about march um who was the top goal scorer in the premiership from march uh, in terms of, I think I did goals and I think I did conversion rate as well. And by a mile uh, from March, I think March, April and May, Shane Long absolutely smashed it. I don't know if you remember, he went through this purple patch where I think he got six games, six goals in seven games or something. Like He, he just performed <laughs> brilliantly. And if you just looked at that number, you'd go, he's going to have a good year next year, isn't he? But like, if you know football, I guess enough, you know it's unlikely that he'll consistently reproduce that over a long period of time. And that's why I think context matters, especially now that everyone online is going more data-driven and they people are discussing data, but then some people either don't understand the data or they're trying to manipulate that data to present a different picture. Context behind data matters. Next question is from Tom77. What's your opinion on the proposed performance bonus that was mentioned in the dividend review? Personally, I hope it's not just PB-based, but more in tune with goals and clean sheets. Old-fashioned strikers who just score goals but never win PB will have a beefier side to their appeal on FI, in my opinion. I think they absolutely smashed it out of the park with the dividend announcement. I think it clearly breathed a new lease of life again into the index. Uh, and I guess promoted what football index do best which is what separates it is if you think a player is going to do well over a long period of time you can make loads of money off that player and i think it just got to the stage where it's such a growing market but there's no need i think the beauty of the dividend increase is you don't need to trade based on any myths you can just trade on the reality because there's such value out there now because every player has got what 57 percent more valuable essentially on average so yeah, I thought it was a great announcement. Um, strikers, I find interesting just because Lewandowski is another one who sticks in my mind around. I had a strong opinion about him at the start, but I wasn't sure if he was a great FI hold and he's just gone from strength to strength in the last few months. So it'll be interesting to see how other number nines do and does he stretch the market for them. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. I think that this kind of longer term PB thing could be team of the week, team of the month. It could be accumulated points over a certain amount of time. It could be goals in a certain amount of games. It could be anything really. I don't, I don't really know how to read it. I think that's going to be great for the platform. Interesting enough, it's interesting that they want to promote more longer holds, which on one hand you go, well, surely that would reduce their commission, but maybe it makes it a more viable and more stable product that's easier for then other people to come in with big money to put in because that's what a team of the month i imagine would do i think that if they veered too far into the kind of in play dividend led approach you wouldn't see massive advance investors yeah and that's agreed. what they need to be like a billion pound market cap in the future yeah. and then i think also a lot of people have been tweeting recently their um commission versus dividends a lot of people that were on there from the start yeah. where their dividends were far greater their commissions are starting to rise and, and catch up now which is really interesting and obviously those stats are without even taking instant sell into account and the last thing i'll say is that just because the underlying dividends are more long term it doesn't mean fi can't stimulate trading and money exchanging hands in different ways. And I think I wrote in the newsletter that went out last week that you should all definitely check out. Um, the, you know, 
moving the dividend deadline back from 2 to 3 p.m., that probably makes a reasonable difference. And yeah. if that's longer term, move back to like 6, 7, 8 p.m., then you're looking at a lot more money exchanging hands and a lot more commission for FI. Yeah, no, I'd agree with all of that. Not to um, tee you up too much to plug your uh, newsletter, but I'm actually not on it. I'll do oh, one. Damn. I, I probably should I be, right? Want, I'll send you a link, but I'll also tweet it out again. Um, it's basically on an app called GetResponse. And uh, you know what? I'm just going to d- give myself a cheeky retweet now. Uh, uh, just yeah, retweeted I the, to plug yourself there, yeah. yeah so i just retweeted it on my uh twitter so you can see it there but yeah it's with fi trader football index lm or liam uh buzzing pool and uh, ginger pillo so we get a quite a, a varied mix of views on the newsletter it goes out every second tuesday so yeah keeps keeps you uh keeps things ticking nice got last couple questions here sure. uh, football index valley some uh valley not value valley and this is uh yeah something that hasn't been talked about in a while if i was a trader only that had only signed up today what advice would you give for someone starting up with new dividends ahead and what to stay away from well i mean i can only say from what i did was start small um but play with make it actual money but small just so i can make my mistakes cheaply as opposed to making mistakes expensively i asked a whole bunch of stupid questions at the start because I figured it was the only way I was going to learn. And for 99% that I asked, there were loads of people who were really helpful, um, who were willing to give up their time to answer. So I think that probably helps. If I was starting now, I'd probably put it in relatively strong PB players, just because it allows me then, I guess, to play the game while learning how the rest of the market works before I then decided which strategy I'd want to go for. Yeah, really wise words. I think actually, um, you know, spreading your money across and like varying and just checking out what works for you and and learning with those little amounts is so important. And those first few months, it's just how quickly you can grasp the market and not how quickly you can make money, which is, I think, people just say, okay, how long will it take me to make this much? And it's like, well, actually, the question you should ask yourself is, how long will it take you to get yourself into a position where you can make some good money? Absolutely. And I think when I joined, I thought it was all going to be about football knowledge, but it's not because you have to appreciate what's happened before you've joined. So in my football knowledge, like when I tell people about it, they always go, oh, you know who you should buy? And you go, okay, yeah, go on, like give me a gem. And they'll go, I think James Madison's going to have like a really good career. And I was like, I agree, but a lot of people have already thought that on the index. So like, you have to appreciate what's been built into someone's price already. And I think without knowing that, you then have a better understanding of why some players rise and why some players actually fall as well. Because the money in them, I guess, isn't just based on their reality. It's based on years of people's speculation about those players as well. Yeah, we've got a last question here from Ash underscore FI. Another question from me. How would a recession affect trading? Would FI be seen as a good opportunity to make money in hard times or would it have the opposite effect? Well, I got that question. That is so out of my area of expertise for psychology. (laughs) But I thought I had about half an hour, so I thought I'd do a bit of research on it to see what I could find out. And it's really interesting. So generally speaking, gambling is a fairly recession-proof industry because it's one of those things where people want to find extra ways of making money. So on one hand, they have less disposable income, but on the other hand, they're probably more likely to do to participate in gambling. What they do find, though, and this has been across a few different countries, is 
casinos tend to make slightly less, but lottery money, a lottery tickets, the amount that get bought go up. So it's it's almost this relationship between what's the cheapest way of me making a big amount of money, even if it's low odds, low chance I'll actually be able to do it. So like a one in a million chance for a pound is probably worth it. So I don't know how that would affect FI. Um, my gut feeling is FI is one of those platforms where football is always going to be on people's minds. Uh, the landscape of football will always be changing. So people will always think that they can profit because it's one of those things that everyone thinks they've got more knowledge than the average person about. I wouldn't be at all worried if I was FI if if that happened. Yeah, I've tossed and turned about this because although it is a gambling platform, it's certainly a unique one. And considering the bankroll that some people have in it, it depends. I think that we will be okay just because it's tax-free, but then it's not really like any other gambling platform. I don't know. I think that's for someone that's way more informed than maybe you and I to make a call on that. I think I've got maybe a, an economic student on next week who could be uh yeah could be nice. use. And i think sam friedman's said in the past as well that he doesn't think there'd be you know brexit or recession would cause any bad things to yeah. happen to fi let's just say it's not so that keeps me up at night worrying about that so no 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 not at all not at all uh, mate this has been uh, fantastic over an hour and a half which is a bit balmy but where can people find out more about you oh uh, good question um i don't even know what my twitter actual name is so i'm on as freund uh, sigmund freund which is like yeah freund underscore mullet i don't really tweet too much about players i own but i generally talk about the index and psychology but yeah always happy to have a chat mainly over twitter or on slack yeah, definitely follow him and uh, throw him loads of annoying psychology-related questions. You can obviously find me at FI Guide. If you guys are commuting right now, I hope this makes your commute go that much faster. If you're not commuting, doing whatever you're doing, um, putting out loads of useless polls on Twitter, then I hope you enjoy doing that. Sorry we didn't get to answer all your questions. There was a ridiculous amount. Sometimes I you know, I post in the Slack community, I post on Twitter and post in the forum, and I was like, oh, we're only recording tomorrow, so people might not get their chances to get questions in and uh lo and behold there was loads and uh, yeah as discussed during the show football linux is a gambling platform only bet what you can afford to lose and stop when the fun stops thank you guys for listening and have a great day <laughs> <laughs>